LegalizeFreedom.com Why are we here? Where do we come from? Where are we going? From the nature of reality to the future of humanity. Beyond politics, poverty and war. LegalizeFreedom.com Greetings and welcome once again to LegalizeFreedom.com. I'm your host Greg Moffat and my guest today is Guy McPherson who joins us to discuss his latest book, Going Dark. If we are the last individuals of our species on Earth, how shall we respond? How shall we act? If industrial civilization is maintained, climate change will cause human extinction in the near term. If industrial civilization fails, sufficient ionizing radiation will be released from the world's nuclear power plants to cause human extinction in the near term. In the wake of this horrific conclusion, conservation biologist McPherson proposes we act with compassion, courage and creativity. He suggests we act with a kind of empathy for which humans are renowned. In other words, he suggests we act with decency toward the humans and other organisms with which we share this beautiful planet. Going Dark is a story of one scientist's response to the horrors we face. It's a deeply personal narrative infused with abundant evidence to support its terrifying claims. Going Dark peels the shadow from the cosy dreams we've all bought into. That technology will save us from climate change. That the products we consume are endless and untainted. That our modern idea of happiness and convenience doesn't crush others. And that the heartbeat of the industrial economy that pulses within us is sustainable and ethical. McPherson's latest work will make you think twice. Hello and welcome, Guy, and thank you so much for joining us today on LegalizeFreedom.com. Thanks for the opportunity, Greg. I appreciate it. Now, Guy, today we're going to be talking about some of the topics raised in your latest collection of writings, which is Going Dark. And for years, many years, you have been writing and speaking about your concerns about where we're headed as a global civilization and all the problems that we're getting into with energy, the environment, and on and on. It's a catalogue of potentially catastrophic problems. It just keeps growing. And as the situation has evolved, your take on it has evolved as well. Uh, For example, when peak oil first really loomed up, uh, you saw that um, actually as a a positive opportunity for a while. So as we're about just to go into, say, just publishing this new book, where do you find yourself in 2013 with all this, both intellectually and emotionally? Well, you're right. I viewed peak oil as an opportunity to extend the run of our species for a while. Working on a book in 2002 with a colleague, a book about climate change, it occurred to me that we were probably headed for our own extinction as a result of climate change as early as 2030 or so. And then shortly thereafter, I discovered the concept of global peak oil, which I thought would terminate industrial civilization rapidly enough to give us another generation or two. But that was a long time ago. That was 11 years ago. And I've given up on that idea. We've we've triggered too many self-reinforcing feedback loops on the climate front. The the climate is warmed. I've encountered considerably much more information during the last 11 years. And I don't see any way that we can extend our run beyond the 2030s in any event because the evidence that has presented itself. It's, it's just overwhelmed me. Now, you mentioned 2030 there, and there's a lot of people out there who've been warning about, as I mentioned before, problems with the environment, problems with energy supply and our complete dependence on fossil fuels and what have you. But your prognosis is not quite uniquely pessimistic, but really to say that, you know, there'll be a sixth great extinction on the Earth come 2030 or that the environment just won't be able to support human life as we know it by then, for some people, that's beyond apocalyptic. Yes, absolutely. And I get a lot of pushback as a result. But I I reached that conclusion 
about 11 years ago, as I indicated. And since then, the evidence has become quite overwhelming. For example, on September 20th of this year, John, da John Davies, writing for the Arctic Methane Emergency Group, concluded that by 2040, there will be habitat for very few, if any, humans on the planet. He was not taking into account any of the 26 self-reinforcing feedback loops we've triggered. He's only considering carbon dioxide in the atmosphere. When you add in the feedback loops, it obviously becomes a lot more dire than that situation. So at this point, I only cite uh, the evidence of other people. I don't do any primary research. Rather, I do secondary research, organizing and synthesizing the information put out by other people. Now, I talk to people, friends, colleagues, and you won't be surprised to learn, I mean, this is your experience as well, that a lot of them are kind of not on the same page when it comes to this. And they'll say things along the lines of, or they'll say things that indicate basically that they don't notice the things you're talking about. Now, obviously, stresses and strains in the system, a lot of them are concealed from us, you know, in, in our everyday lives. Where would you expect these stresses and strains to begin to manifest themselves within, you know, the system that most people live within at locations or to an extent that they can't ignore anymore? As of about a year and a half ago, there were a thousand children a day dying early deaths because of climate change, mostly in the Southern Hemisphere, mostly in Sub-Saharan Africa. Just because it hasn't come to your neighborhood yet doesn't mean it's not happening at a global scale. The last time we had a, a month of below average global temperature was February 1985. So that's a long time. You would expect to have a month of slightly below average temperature, say, every other month or so. It's been since February 1985 that that occurred. Uh, we triggered all those self-reinforcing feedback loops. Some people are noticing um, without paying any attention to the scientific data at all. For example, I lived in Tucson, Arizona for more than 20 years, and two of the last four winters in Tucson, there were freezing events so dire, so cold, that 80 to 100-year-old citrus trees were killed. Now, they've been there for a long time, and it got so cold in the last few winters that it killed these citrus trees. So it's not just warming of the planet. It's temperature swings. It's late spring freezes and early fall freezes. It's cold temperatures. It's warm temperatures. It's Hurricane Sandy coming to a neighborhood near you. It's a Category 5 typhoon headed for the Philippines right now. It's all these events, and by the way, those, those big events, those extreme weather events, are one of the self-reinforcing feedback loops because essentially every one of them kicks a lot of carbon into the atmosphere by killing a bunch of trees, for example, uh, by, by drowning uh, vegetation in typhoons or by droughts and fires killing the trees and so forth. So, I, I, you know, it's, it's hard for me to tell people what they should be looking for when it seems to me the evidence is abundant and all around us. At the same time, it's becoming increasingly difficult to grow food at scale, like we've been doing for the last, well, 70 years or so post-World War II. Uh, the, in, the industrial economy, industrial civilization, uh, is teetering on the brink because of a number of factors, including expensive oil, but also because of these temperature fluctuations and ongoing climate chaos so i'm thinking of things like um i don't know what it would take for something like this to happen you know people go to the store and there's no bottled water today uh, there isn't any tomorrow and oh wait it's a week later there still isn't any or things along those lines and of course we know from going back as far as the 70s people were writing about um you know the vulnerability of the of industrial society we know that things like that, you know, with uh, very short supply chains, everything's last minute, that things that would affect your average Joe in your average city in the West or in any other industrialized nation, that can, the onset of that can be very rapid. Yes, that's exactly right. And I'm reminded of the aftermath of, of Hurricane Sandy, which, of course, hit the northeast United States right around New York, New York City in particular. And in the wake of that, the United States agency, the Federal Emergency Management Administration or agency, I'm not sure which it is, FEMA, uh, posted, posted signs on their offices saying, 
they were unable to work because the weather's so bad. This is the Emergency Management Organization for the United States. And so in the wake of that event, the Occupy movement was going out and distributing food and water to people. So the government is breaking down in the wake of events such as that. You know, we can go all the way back to Hurricane Katrina, which hit the Gulf Coast um, many years ago, and it was pretty clear that the government was able, unable to respond in an adequate manner at that point, and the situation is not getting any better. So there are several factors that are triggering the inability of corporations and government to provide that just-in-time delivery service for essentially everything that we've come to depend upon. And climate is one of them, but there are others as well. The, you know, the, the system since Lehman Brothers collapsed and AIG went with them um, in 2008, early 2009, uh, the, the system has been running out of money to get things done. So we, so we see various kinds of austerity being imposed. And sometimes they're not transparent. Sometimes it's not called austerity because most voters, most taxpayers would not like to be exposed to an austere set of living arrangements. But instead we see various services that we take for granted being chipped away. And I think that's because we're, we're in the era of expensive oil. It's pretty apparent that crude peaked, and so now we rely upon on tar sands and oil shales and deep water oil and all those kinds of things to keep the set of living arrangements running. But the, but the whole system has entered an era of great economic contraction. Pile on top of that, the occasional climate disaster along with the ongoing climate change, and then add on catastrophes such as Fukushima Daiichi, and it becomes difficult to imagine how the system can hold beyond not very far into the future. And I'm not going to make a prediction regarding date, but it's pretty evident that at some point that, that combination of events overwhelms the capacity for society, for civilized society, to respond. And we seem to be very close to that with, with just a single event of Fukushima Daiichi. It was triggered March 11, 2011. And TEPCO, the Tokyo Electric Power Company, the Japanese government, uh, to a far lesser extent, other governments that are claiming to help, are not being able to handle that situation. The reactor number four teeters on the brink, could fall over at any time, setting off a fission reaction that could set off a, a chain of fission reactions. And, and that's just one event driven by a tsunami started by an earthquake two and a half years ago that has the whole system out of kilter and teetering on the brink. What do we do when we have two or three or six of those going at the same time? What do we do when that Category 5 typhoon hits the Philippines within the next few days? What do we do when Fukushima Daiichi hits, gets hit with another tsunami? and causes even greater difficulty there. What if we tack on at the same time increased instability in the Middle East? I mean, we're, we're entering this age in which money is no longer as widely available as it was when we had $40 oil. Money's no longer cheap, and we're, we're tacking on all of these natural disasters to go along with the human catastrophe that is nuclear power plants and industrial civilization generally. And I just don't see a way through this that doesn't end with a, a tremendous amount of human suffering in the not-so-distant future. It's certainly correct to say that uh, nuclear, which was held up, um, even though through, throughout the decades we still have not worked out a way to process or even store suitably uh, the waste uh, nuclear material, it's still held up as the fuel source of the future. That's what was going to save us from the threat of running out fossil fuel. And that's that's just, you know, being exposed for the fantasy that it always was. But speaking of economics, it's also been clear that at, at, throughout the 20th century and it's ongoing now, we're just having yet another one in these series of economic crises that we seem to go from to and from constantly. The economic system has actually aggravated all the things that you're talking about because it distorts markets. And of course, in the early days of the 20th century, 
in economics itself, the, the so-called dismal science, land was taken out, effectively taken out of economic equations. And we had all these so-called externalities that meant that the true cost of, say, for example, the aforementioned bottle of water at the store or, you know, a cheeseburger, the true cost of that and producing it is not reflected in the price. So things are artificially cheap. And over the long run, that causes enormous problems. Yes, absolutely. And we're seeing some of the impacts of that now. The, when you when you externalize all the activities associated with drilling for oil and delivering that oil and processing it, refining it and getting it to the pumps, when you externalize all of the factors beyond extraction and delivery, which is what we've done in, in this country, and to a lesser extent in other Western nations, then you have events like Deepwater Horizon in the Gulf of Mexico that result. If, if we had priced oil at what it actually costs to extract, deliver, pay for the infrastructure, pay for the consequences, such as bills, if we had internalized all those costs 40, 50, 70, 100 years ago, then we would be facing 12 to $15 per gallon at the pump, which means $4 per liter at the, at the pump. And we would have been there for a very long time, and the entire society would have been different than it is now. But we made that decision and many similar decisions a long time ago, most of which were designed to benefit a relatively few people financially. Um, governments in this country are designed to benefit corporations and the relatively few people, the pinnacle of those corporations, at the expense of the, quote, common person. So it's a, it's a little late now to try to internalize those externalities. It would cause significant disruption to the entire system and probably bring it all down in a relatively short period of time. So I don't see anybody making any progress on that front. I don't see anybody taking away the subsidies on fossil fuels in the United States, for example. I don't see anybody taking away the subsidies on delivering cheap bottled water at the grocery store at this point um, because it would almost certainly cause even more significant economic contraction than we're already observing. I studied economics at school as it's not at university level, just basic. Uh, but I, I learned almost nothing actually about how the world actually works. And economics is supposed to be one of the, you know, sort of metrics that measures how the human world works and its interaction. But there's an interesting point you make in the book, and this applies not just to economics, but academia in general, and to a lot of science, is that these institutions can be very dominated by ego-driven individuals. There's a lot of that ego attached to you know getting ahead in your discipline and getting things published and that's not conducive with doing seeing things clearly or doing what's right no you're absolutely right about that and it's not just economics it's the entire enterprise of higher education at least in the united states and probably throughout the world i mean it's it's essentially the same system the same model that we've had for the last 400 years or so and what drives that is ego and what wins out is ego the bigger ego you have, the more renowned you become in academic circles and therefore beyond those academic circles. So the entire enterprise of higher education is ego-driven. That makes it really difficult for somebody to admit their errors, to admit their mistakes, to backtrack and say, oh, I was was wrong about this and it looks like things are headed in this direction instead because that gives up a lot of ego to do that and I was a part of that system for a very long time <clears throat> I, I know what I speak because I have one of the largest egos on the planet so I, I can see it when it happens in other people too it's a it's a horrific system that has not served the people at all it again has become part of an irredeemably, fundamentally corrupt system that benefits the financially wealthy, primarily the corporations, at the expense of the people. So what we have is, is not really what I would call capitalism or, or, or any particular ism that describes the whole system. Rather, I think what we have was described by Paul Ehrlich and Anne Ehrlich in their book, One with Nineveh, we have 
socialism for the rich, capitalism for the poor. So what we have is grinding capitalism for the people who can least afford it. But the rich get their bailouts every single time. So we see this happening with the big banks, for example, and, and with all the major corporations. When they get in trouble, there's plenty of material, plenty of resources, plenty of money to make sure they're doing okay. Meanwhile, the actual unemployment rate in this country is somewhere around 20%. But we keep changing the rules so that it appears to be fewer people than that that are unemployed and so on. So we have this fundamentally irredeemably corrupt system at the entire level of the country and probably most of the westernized world, industrial civilization, and a, and a relatively small part of that is academia, but academics uh, contribute probably to a far greater extent than is merited to the continuation of the system because these are, at some level, these are priests, especially the economists within academia have become the high priests of a system that worships one thing and one thing only, and that's economic growth. Yeah, and also the economists get sometimes, and other academics as well, but they get looked to for answers to questions that, you know, the answers are already there. You know, you'll hear people on uh, on radio and TV shows and they've got on their specialist guest, this top economist, and they're saying, is the country in a recession? And he'll, you know, churn out some reason why it's not, even though it's obvious what's happening on the street, you know, p people's day-to-day -day experience. And yet, it's, well, top economists said it, you know, so it's, we're not in a recession. Yes, it's absurd that the people and expect to have authoritative information about, I mean, they don't call it the dismal science for nothing. The, the entire enterprise of neoclassical economics is built on a foundation of sand, and that's being charitable or insulting to sand, depending upon your perspective. It's the, the assumptions that underlie neoclassical economics can be readily punctured by a, a junior high student and pointed out as blatantly, glaringly, obviously incorrect. And yet, who do, we, who do we turn to for information about how well our world is going? Economists, of course. Well, and you mentioned already the, the this infinite growth paradigm that we're that we're living under, and perhaps that's currently being exposed again as a fantasy because since 2008 and the financial crash, we're hearing a lot of talk about green shoots, and but we're still waiting for this recovery. And the government wheel out some figures. This happens in Europe, the UK, US, all over. They wheel out some figures on on growth and on interest rates, this, that, and the other thing, and they'll tell us, you know, the house prices are going up perhaps, and this is all good because we're going to get back to growth anytime soon. And certainly in the UK here, the government find themselves in the absurd position of promoting growth and austerity at the same time because they've got to cut some of these social programs, but at the same time, we've got to get the economy growing. And they're diametrically opposed, and that's the sort of absurdity that's beginning to show cracks in this perpetual growth paradigm, I think. Yes, absolutely. It's, it's, again, capitalism for the poor and socialism for the rich. Got to have growth at the macro scale, but that's got to come at a cost because money isn't as widely available as it was. We're in this time of economic contraction. Somebody's got to pay for that. Well, it's the poor, of course, who have to pay for that. It's the large institutions, the corporations, the banks, the governments that we have to maintain at every cost. And the costs are really stacking up at this point. I used to think we might have a revolution, but I think as long as the television stays on, we won't have a revolution because people, at least in this country, are so overwhelmed, are so willing to capitulate to the idiot box, the, the television, that as long as we have beer commercials and car commercials in the occasional situational comedy, I don't see a revolution in our near future. Well, I've made this point many times before, but I kind of see people, uh, these people I meet in day-to-day -day life, they seem to, seem to be going more or less in two sort of directions. Uh, I meet people who are kind of awakening to new realizations about, you know, these things, and they're seeing that the world isn't really how they thought it was or how they were told or what they learned in school, what they grew up to believe. And I see other people actually going deeper into unconsciousness, just embracing the banality, the beer commercials, the bikini-clad girls, the sports cars, the football, whatever it is, because at some subconscious level, I think they they know that all is not well, but they just can't face it. It's just too overwhelming. Well, it is, and that's perfectly understandable. 
if, if you, if all you've ever known is this system, and for most of us, this is all we've ever known is some version of this system of, of ongoing economic growth, of relative prosperity, of the promise that if we work hard and play by the rules, it'll all work out for us. And so for, for people who have worked hard and who have played by the rules, and now they've graduated from college, and maybe they've paid off their student loans, and maybe they haven't, but they're out there in the world and they're making money and they're making enough money to, to keep gas in the car and to, to buy their food from the grocery store and pay for all the utilities and, and have enough money left over so that the end of the week they can go out to dinner with family and friends. Well, it's all working really quite nicely. I mean, this is the payoff that they were promised and they're receiving it. So when it comes to the, to the consequences, the costs of that way of living, people don't want to know, so they look away. If, if that way of living costs children in China much shorter lives, if it costs adults in China loss of fingers or legs because of the factory system, if it costs other species high rates of extinction or torture because they're part of the industrial food chain, well, most people are, are, are willing to look the other way because they finally realized the benefit of working hard within a fundamentally corrupt system. They didn't know it was corrupt. We were all born into this system. We didn't know there was anything wrong with it. We went along with it, never hearing a bad word about it. And then when you start to awaken, you realize, oh, there are costs and consequences for the way we live, that, that the entire society is structured in a way that is fundamentally egregious to some groups of human beings. Well, I don't want to think about that. I'll just put my head down and go on business as usual. And yeah, there are some people who wake up and try to change things. For the most part, they are punished by the corporations, by the corporate government, the corporate governments of the world. And so the radical, the person who gets to the root of things, is going to face significant adverse consequences. That's unfortunate. Now, in my aforementioned economics lessons, uh, what I experienced was nothing less than a form of indoctrination. And I don't have kids, but I've got friends who have kids of, uh, you know, young kids school age. And I've got friends who are teachers at um, what we call primary level here, which is, you know, the youngest kids right through to university level. And that system is still turning out people to function within an industrial paradigm that, as you've documented, is going away. And it's people are increasingly kids coming out of college and university are increasingly finding that it's not the world isn't set up for them uh, to work for them anymore. Yes, that's exactly right. And it took me a long time to figure that out, too. Um, even though I was writing uh, critically about higher education and its progenitors, the secondary and primary school systems as well, I was writing about how they were really indoctrination centers. They were in incarceration camps for all practical purposes. But it took me a long time to integrate that into my own life. So even after the critic realizes that what he is writing about is in many ways horrible and corrupt and probably can't be changed except by throwing the whole system out, it's difficult to integrate that into your own life. You know, you can serve as a witness or you can do some more radical act like walking away from that system or uh, forsaking the system or trying to terminate the system in the spirit of Derek Jensen, for example, uh, and deep green resistance more generally. Those are difficult acts to take because everybody we know in this system was born into the system, indoctrinated in the system, and, and doesn't really see what's the matter with it. The cracks are showing now, but... We still have more than 200,000 people added to the planet every day. So unless we're convincing more than 200,000 a day that the cracks are showing that it's time to turn things around, we aren't really making any progress. We have more people born into captivity every day. So we have to have a lot of weakening all at one time if we're going to make great strides. Another response I get from people, it's um, essentially can be summed up as um, I'll be dead by then which is kind of a bit of a nihilistic attitude to where things are going. But I think people, I, I've certainly met people who 
genuinely feel that. They're saying, well, you know, I've had a pretty good inning so far. These are people perhaps, uh, you know, 40, 50, whatever. And they think another 40 years I won't be here and uh, everything else will carry on pretty much as it is now. And, you know, we'll think of something, basically. Yes, absolutely. This uh, this Iroquois Confederation notion of seven generations, of making decisions only after we consider the consequences seven generations out. We haven't been thinking that way for a really, really long time in the country or in the world. So as you point out, most people are unwilling or incapable of thinking beyond their own lifespan. We, we can't even imagine our grandchildren's grandchildren, you know, four, four or five generations out. That's unimaginable to us. So we don't act as if those four or five generations matter. And the, the system has become so rapidly accelerating, so just-in-time delivery-based, so immediate gratification-oriented, that it becomes essentially impossible for us to consider what happens to our grandchildren even. And so we don't. So, so people don't think beyond their own children. Most people don't even think beyond their own lives. So that's obviously catastrophic. We know where that goes. That goes right where we're at. And right where we're at is not a particularly good place to be. No, and for many people, and again, I, I don't have kids, so in some ways my daily routine is simplified uh, by comparison. But a lot of people in, in modern era have scarcely got time to think or that they think they haven't got time to think because they get up in the morning, kids running around, walk the dog, get the kids to school, go to work, come back home, you know, pick up the kids. Then there's social events happening in the evening. There's always, always demands your time. And whether these are positive things, you know, activities you enjoy or whether they're negative things, you know, you've got to go to the dentist, whatever. There always seems to be something to keep people running, to stand still and consideration. And this, this will be even people who are grandparents thinking about their grandkids, grandkids just never enters the equation. No, that's absolutely right. And in this country and also throughout the rest of the rest of the Western world, the it has become increasingly difficult for a single salaried person to support a family. So as a consequence, things get even busier. Whereas in the 1950s, early 1960s, one individual could be the breadwinner for the family. Now that doesn't work anymore. In addition to inflation eroding away the buying power of individuals, we also have increased acceleration of societal opportunities. And so if your kid isn't busy now, from the time they're five years old, busy with all kinds of extracurricular activities, they're perceived as having something wrong with them. We don't take any time in this culture to contemplate our own place in this culture, much less the universe. And so we rush around from place to place. So we have things becoming increasingly expensive. We have even our way of life becomes increasingly expensive. I read an article last week that pointed out, whereas we used to have a telephone, a single landline telephone that would actually ring and you had to stand next to it to talk on it. Now everybody essentially has various kinds of digital devices. And so they have to they have to pay for all that or they just don't fit into the society. So now they have a tablet and they have a smartphone and uh, and they have cable television, whereas they used to have an antenna that brought in three channels. And now they have cable that brings in 700 and on and on it goes. And all of that adds up, obviously. And so it costs more than it used to because we have more toys that we think we have to have at our immediate disposal. And it costs more because of ongoing inflation. And the whole system encourages us to go faster and faster and faster and starting at a very early age. All of that is catastrophic for individuals and societies that reward individuals who actually think, who actually take the time to slow down their lives and spend some time in meditation, kind of contemplating their place in the world or in the universe. There, there's no reward for that. Uh, there's, there's punishment for that in this system. And so the gears keep churning and they, they keep churning faster. You're mentioning the 1950s and how things have changed over the years really touches upon another phenomenon that I'm noticing. 
And that's, you know, we have a generation now, the first generation of youngsters who are going to do less well than their parents did. And in the infinite growth growth paradigm, that's just unthinkable because things have got to keep getting better and better. Uh, even if it means more junk along the lines you were just talking about, people have got to feel better off as the decades go by. And that's not going to happen. And we're seeing that now. I mean, I'm in my 40s and even my parents' generation, I speak to them and they can't quite fathom that, you know, I don't have a house that's paid off. I don't I can't run two cars. I don't have a pension. What I, you know, the work I do keeps changing, that type of thing. And they, they find it. I don't think they'd contemplate it, in my experience anyway, particularly deeply, because it's rather disturbing to them that how can this possibly happen? And I think they see it at worst um, as a temporary blip and that we'll be back on track at some point and have that Jetsons future that we were all promised. Right, absolutely. Um, and and probably your parents' generation, which is a half a generation younger than my parents' generation, they, they may be among the people who have the most difficulty grasping the notion of economic contraction. You have to go another half a generation or so beyond that to get to the Great Depression generation, to, to people who have actually experienced a significant economic contraction. Uh, my parents, who are in their mid-70s now, don't know about the Great Depression. They never experienced that economic contraction. So they, they look back and all they see for their children and grandchildren is continued economic growth infinite growth on a finite planet it's obviously insane but if it's all you've ever known is increasing economic growth then it's difficult to imagine that that could turn around and so the, the mere thought of it is beyond the pale because it's never it's not in anybody's experience essentially who's alive today that's going to make this far more challenging because there is this intergenerational inequity as a consequence of that, there's this inability for the generations to thoughtfully communicate with each other because it's difficult for, for the so-called greatest generation, uh, the, the people my age and older, to even fathom what the, what the younger people are going through. You just need to work hard and the jobs will come your way. Soon you'll have your house paid off. Blah, blah, blah. All those other lies that culture has been telling us for a long time that are coming home to roost, so to speak. It's, it's not the same world it was not very long ago. You mentioned increasing instability in the Middle East. Uh, that's an ongoing uh, car crash there, really. It just gets worse by the year. More and more interference, from mostly from the West, but also from Israel. But there's a lot of power plays going on there. But I think at the root of it, and we know that there's an oil is an issue there, and certainly some of the uh, powers are interfering there, there for oil. But I think at the root of it, there are re- major resource problems, many of them linked to climate change that are actually dogging the Middle East. And if you drill right down, that's at the root of it. For example, one of the things that, you know, that the whole Arab Spring thing started, albeit it was just someone's right to, to sell food without being too heavily taxed. But you look at the governments of Egypt and whatever sort of sham government they've got in Libya, uh, Syria's got problems along these lines, and that's problem with providing enough food and water for its own people. And even some of these countries that do produce oil, some of them are now having to import oil because they can no longer meet their own domestic demand. And that puts a very different spin on some of the headlines we see in the news. That's exactly right. It's the intersection or the interaction of all these forces simultaneously. It's not just expensive oil, and in some of those countries running out of cheap oil that used to provide for their own country as well as provide some export and therefore a tremendous amount of income. It's not just running out of inexpensive oil. It's not just climate change, which of course is, is crippling the ability to produce food for 7.1 billion people and increasing. So it's not just single factors. It's the interaction between all these factors. We're, we're able to produce less food. The, the weather is changing as the climate changes. And as a consequence, we can't grow food at scale, especially the grains that are, that are required to maintain a civilized set of living arrangements. So you tack that on to economic contraction, to a dwindling supply of a finite material and suddenly it's pretty obvious that 
the world we face is not the world we experienced in the not too distant past. I read recently that the marginal barrel of oil now is produced at more than a hundred dollars, more than a hundred dollars to produce a barrel of oil. And if you're not getting that, it's not worth it to produce that barrel of oil. What that means is if the price goes down below a hundred dollars, certainly if it goes down below 80 or $90 for a significant period of time, a matter of weeks even, we're going to experience significant supply disruptions because the oil shales and the tar sands just are not economically viable at those prices. On the other hand, if, if the price of oil spikes, well, we know that every global economic recession since 1972 was preceded by a spike in the price of oil. So we're in the sweet spot now at more than $100 oil. It's sufficient to keep the system going, to keep food in the grocery stores, fuel filling stations, water coming out of the municipal taps. But if we go too far in either direction from roughly $100 oil, that's going to produce significant consequences for the entirety of industrial civilization. Nobody's talking about that. Nobody's warning about that in a significant scale. I don't see much action on the part of governments to mitigate for that or even to warn people that it might be coming. And so obviously that's going to exacerbate the situation even worse. But you're right. We have these coinciding catastrophes that are developing and crashing into each other simultaneously. And we don't have institutions, corporations, governments, nonprofits, whatever, we don't have institutions that are capable of dealing with more than one catastrophe at a time. And even one catastrophe is a significant stretch, much less coinciding catastrophes. It's quite uh, shocking to contemplate that marginal oil price that you quoted because I remember, albeit it was a long time ago, that the production cost of oil was like in single figures for a barrel. And you look at the, the difference between that and now, and yet in the time that I've been driving, which is about 25 years, the gas price at the pump is only, he says, only about six times where it was when I started. <laughs> right. Yes, this is a this is a big deal, and and again, it's one of those things that is not um, being widely recognized, not being widely reported by the media, not being widely accounted for by institutions. That's problematic. Population's also an issue here. I mean, that's a whole other debate in itself. But just in the context of the Middle East, of course, one of the other issues they have is is their populations are growing at an incredible rate. And it's uh, causing even more sustainability problems. But even in the West, where we have declining domestic um, populations, of course, there's increasing immigration, which yet again is another whole discussion. But a lot of that's been driven by, yes, people looking for a better life, but people also trying to escape some of the problems we've been talking about. That's absolutely right. And so we have more people demanding more things more stuff because well my parents got all the toys they wanted you know they worked hard they played by the rules they had enough money to to buy everything they needed to make as many trips as they wanted to put their kids through college and so forth so everybody expects the same everybody expects that they will be able to act in the same manner and acquire the same sorts of material possessions and so it's that intersection of population growth and demand for material possessions that is contributing to the catastrophe. Now, in terms of there being money for some things and not money for others, we mentioned this earlier in the context of you know bailouts, socialism for the rich, capitalism for the poor. One of the things that there always seems to be money for is, is war. You know, you've got to close down a museum or shut some local libraries, you know, things that people actually get pleasure out of and that have some use. But when it comes to military adventures overseas money doesn't seem to be an object and of course it strikes me that as the situation unravels that there will be more tendency towards command and control and militarism and in order to try and keep a lid on things and that of course is going to drive the military budget even higher right and so there's there's another classic example of a positive feedback i think um, there's a lot of money in in war um, there's not money or benefit 
in war for most people, but there is for a few people. You look at the Halliburtons and the Hughes Raytheons, the big corporations that that exist, survive and thrive only because of military intervention. They're doing great, and the relatively few people who are who are pulling the levers of industry, they're doing great. That doesn't mean your 19-year-old kid who graduates from high school and has no prospects of a job because we're in economic contraction. That doesn't mean it's going to be good for him. We, get, we need cannon fodder, son. I'm sorry, but you're going to have to go to the Middle East. So it's just another classic case of socialism for the rich, capitalism for the poor, with, with war at the leading edge. It's a positive feedback because there's money to be made and there's resources to be had. We can only maintain this set of living arrangements in this country if we keep importing a significant part of our oil. Where are we gonna get that? There's a huge demand worldwide now. So it's not that we're just gonna be able to pay for it. It's We're gonna to have to have access created by other means as well. So that means we're gonna to have to take our guns and go get that oil in the Middle East. You know the. The president who I view based on his daily actions as the last decent man in the Oval Office in this country was Jimmy Carter. And the doctrine named for Jimmy Carter, the Carter Doctrine, says that with respect to the Middle East, that's our oil over there. Because he knew. He knew at the time. Late 1970s, the United States extraction of oil had already peaked. He knew what it took to maintain an empire in decline. And that means going over there and getting what we need to maintain the set of living arrangements. So even though he was a decent man based on his daily actions, you could argue that he wasn't in charge, that, that the CIA or the large banks or whoever are, were running the country and making the decisions even at that time. But the doctrine that's named for him is the one that says we go get what we want. And that takes war. And that costs cannon fodder. And so we have this set of living arrangements now that is maintained by war and exacerbated by war. The rich get richer and the store, the poor stay poor, in part because we're spending the money on war and throwing cannon fodder, young, mostly rural kids, into the breach and ensuring that they never make any significant amount of money. So it's all unbelievably horrific, and teasing out the individual pieces is like pulling that thread on a sweater. How far do you want to pull that thread? Until you don't have a sweater anymore? Until you're cold? Because you pulled, this, pulled the thread on the sweater that exposed the system for what it is? You know, the whole thing is interconnected. It's horrific in terms of its costs for people outside this country, for the poor inside this country, for the non-human species that we're driving to extinction, for the soil we're flushing into the world's oceans, for the air we foul, for the water we dirty. You know, there's just so many, so many adverse consequences of the way we live and the way the system is structured that I can understand why people don't want to look at it. I can understand why people would prefer popping the beer and watching the television. It makes perfect sense to me. Whatever various militaries are up to in the Middle East and some other parts of the world, the other side of that uh, scene on the domestic front is basically how many countries are descending into some form of police state. And it's a very loaded uh, phrase and a lot of people resist it. But it seems clear that that's what we already have in many countries, uh, include the US and the UK and that because yeah, you're free to walk down the street and you're free to do a limited number of things, but it doesn't take very long. You start to push at the edges when suddenly the police take an interest in what you're doing. And this has got a lot worse, certainly in my lifetime. I mean, there are things that we put up with now, uh, mainly in airports, that if you told me in the 1980s that one day we'd be doing this, I'd, I'd have said, no way. To, to coin a phrase, that won't fly. People are not going to put up with that. And yet we do. And I think that the spying and surveillance that we see all around us now, those two are signs of decline. You know, that the reactive measures being taken by sometimes desperate governments. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. We are in a full-blown surveillance state in this country. Our freedoms have been chipped away. And so, so currently... We, we allow big energy companies to poison our water. We allow big ag to control the food supply. We allow big banks to control the flow of money. We control big pharmaceutical companies to control the behavior of our children, in many cases ourselves. 
through it all, we think we're free. Really? It seems absurd to think we're free when we, we capitulate to all these large institutions to exert control over every aspect of our lives. And, and if, we, if we try to point out, merely point out what's going on in the system, we get the Bradley Manning treatment, the Chelsea Manning treatment. Sorry. We get the Edward Snowden treatment. We get the Glenn Greenwald treatment. As George Orwell pointed out a long time ago, truth is treason in an empire of lies. And we have an empire of lies. We have a complete surveillance state that is keeping people herded, corralled in a, in a certain direction and a certain set of living arrangements. And to try to point out the absurdities of that system, much less bust out, that only is going to produce pain for the individual who is pointing out the absurdities. So, so yes, the, I, was, I was at a, a conference, a hacker conference in August of this year. And Edwards, uh, sorry, Julian Assange was brought in by a live stream. And the first question that was asked of him after he pointed out the overwhelming evidence for a complete surveillance state in the United States at this point, the first question that was asked of him was, okay, so that's the United States, but only 5% of the world's population lives there. And so what about the rest of us? What do, what do people here in the Netherlands, what do we do that, that allows us to over Calm that sort of system influencing our lives. And Julian Assange just cracked a wry smile and he says, the Netherlands is part of NATO. The United States owns you. There's no escaping. It's a global empire at this point. And, and the, the catastrophe is truly global. So I just don't understand how so many people cannot see that cannot feel that as part of the way we live now. Basically, that idea that some people have about going to New Zealand and getting a small holding that might buy you some time, but you know we, we are all in it together at the end of the day, and that includes people in their ivory towers surrounded by guns. Absolutely. Yes, we are all in this together, and... And the best I can hope for is that people recognize we're all in this together and act like we're all in this together. You know, Kurt Vonnegut's son, Mark, when asked the question, why are we here, answered, we are here to help each other through this, whatever this is. And I think that's right. We have a lot of people who are, who are acting as if having the last gun and the last bunker and the last can of beans is a reasonable strategy for the future. And I think just the opposite. Uh, I think a reasonable strategy for the future involves embracing our human community as well as our non-human community and acting as if we're here to help each other through this, whatever this is. As we try to think beyond this, um, of course, there's a lot of people, many good people are putting forward suggestions about ways forward in terms of energy and how we might deal with some environmental problems. Um, sometimes they're called the third industrial revolution. But in your book, you kind of take that apart and say, look, folks, you know, there might be, you might, you can hope all you want, but this isn't going to work. This isn't the answer to keeping things as they are. That's right. The third industrial revolution is a myth. Believing that we can maintain the set of living arrangements essentially forever with no adverse consequences for human beings in the living planet is just absolutely absurd. If you look around at what we've done to get to this point, it's absolutely horrendous. And you want to maintain that set of living arrangements? Never mind whether it could happen, which it can't, because energy is finite. Never mind that we can't maintain the set of living arrangements essentially forever. Why would we want to? Look at what happens when we enslave a huge proportion of the number of the people in the world and call it progress. Is that a reasonable way? Is that a humane way to live? I don't think so. And as I pointed out in my book, the third industrial revolution is a farce anyway. We, we simply cannot have infinite growth on a finite planet, pure and simple. There are limits to growth. And they were pointed out in 1972 by the Club of Rome and we're crashing hard up against them. No amount of techno fantasy is going to get us around that. And as you also point out in the book, um, if we zoom out, uh, we're, we're living, you know, the 20th century or well, basically the era since the Industrial Revolution. 
has been a historically abnormal period because yes there's been huge empires before you know Rome and Greece and others and they fell as well but they weren't global in this sense and they came apart for different reasons there's certainly analogies to be made but even you know ancient Rome looks sustainable compared to what we have now globally Absolutely. This is a global empire. If anybody's paying attention at all, there's no getting around that. It is all interconnected. We have, we have a 12,000 mile food chain, you know, a 12,000 mile food chain so that I can have my Caesar salad at a restaurant. That's, that's absolutely surreal. It's something that would have been unimaginable even a hundred years ago. And, and yet here we are with everything depending upon everything else and everybody depending upon everybody else. So let's act as if everybody depends upon everybody else. Let's act with the, with kind of compassion and kindness for which human beings are ultimately renowned. Now, when it comes to making changes uh, in our lives, significant changes that disconnect us somewhat from this culture and this, this control grid, it can be difficult challenging not only on a practical front but what i think affects people even more is that they don't even go down the route of seeing what they maybe could do you know practically because they care a little bit too much about what other people think and this can be a real issue when it comes to family and friends and you we haven't discussed this so far but you made you were sort of walking the walk and you made enormous change in your life that affected your work your relationships everything and you did it in the teeth of some resistance shall we say Yes, some resistance would be something of an understatement. When you radically change the way you live, the people you had contact with before view you with either concern for you or concern that you or them is doing something wrong. And there's a whole bunch of them and only one of you. So it's pretty easy to reach the conclusion about who's, who, who's doing something wrong in that case. So, yes, I have very little contact with the people I was relatively close to five years ago the, because, because I made a radical change in my life. And that's difficult. And at this point, it's not something I would recommend to most people because it's been so unbelievably difficult for me as an individual and and ultimately i haven't really managed to escape the empire anyway the the, the cost and consequences of imperialism are all, all around me are impacting me and i've had essentially no impact on the lives of other people at least at, at any significant level so it's difficult for me to recommend to people taking the steps i've taken they ultimately are too painful relative to the very, very small benefits that have arisen. And we've been discussing some of the potential problems that we're facing, or we're already experiencing, but that are coming at us down the line. And I suppose when each new really globally significant problem manifests, for example, like Fukushima, that's caused people through choice and necessity to make major life changes. I, they just can't live in that city anymore. But I suppose the numbers that actually take action kind of wake up and change their life to some extent each time is going to be relatively small. Uh, it might increase, but we're basically in this trajectory that we is, you've concluded is unavoidable. You know, we're going to hit the wall. It's just a question of how hard. Yes, absolutely. And so individuals can make changes that will mitigate for this. So, so individuals can take the foot off the accelerator and maybe even apply the brake before they hit the wall. I think society... It's too late for society to do that. I think that not only are we going to hit the wall, but we're, as a society, we're not interested in putting on the brake. We just keep pressing harder on the accelerator. But individuals certainly are capable of taking actions that will soften the blow, that will soften the impact. Whether they want to, given the costs that are involved, is a whole other question. But I'm firmly convinced there are things individuals can do to make the impact not fatal, at least, for them as individuals and for their families. And for many people, the impact is going to be fatal when industrial civilization fails, for example, when it fails for them in, in their neck, neck of the woods. 
uh, when climate change comes to haunt them by removing habitat where they live. Just to close on a philosophical note, you must get people asking you, I don't know if they still do, okay, okay, what do I do? Not even looking for practical suggestions, but just emotionally, intellectually, where, where do I go now that I've learned this? And my kind of thought on it is really just to try and find some sort of peace with it, if that's possible. And, you know, sometimes in the way that people who are terminally ill can find peace. Well, I routinely use the analogy of hospice. And I think that we're all in hospice now. I think we don't have long as a species on this planet. And so let, let's think about what we observe when we observe people in hospice. Do we, do we see people trying to accumulate material possessions? Or do we see people giving things away? Do we see people hoarding their knowledge and their money? Or do we see people acting with wisdom and sharing that wisdom and giving away their material possessions? So I think we are ultimately capable of being tremendously compassionate, giving human beings. I think I see that kind of behavior from people in hospice more than I do from the general populace. So I would like to think that we can live our lives with kindness for other human beings and for non-human species to a greater extent than I have observed throughout most of my life. And so I encourage people to do that, to act as if they don't have long on this planet. Because even if you live to be 100 years old, that's not long on this planet, is it? And that's, that's, that's hardly a, a step towards forever. So let's act as if our time here is finite. Let's act as if we can display the best attributes of humanity. I don't think that's uh, too much to ask. Guy, in closing, uh, we've been talking uh, about your book, Going Dark, and other related subjects. Perhaps you'd like to share with listeners um, your website uh, anything else about your work that you'd like to put out there? Sure. My website is guymcpherson.com. It's Nature Bats Last, and you can find it by using your favorite online search engine by typing in Nature Bats Last or my name, Guy McPherson. And there's, there's a lot of essays there, including recently a lot of essays by guest writers. You can also find information about my books. And whenever I write for other outlets, those essays appear with a link there as well. So I write a monthly essay for Transition Voice, which is the e-zine for the transition movement, transitioning away from fossil fuels in light of climate change. And I also write periodic essays for the Good Men Project. And so I bring all those to the team. Whenever I give a presentation and somebody is there to videotape it, I post that on my website as well so you can see my latest thoughts on any number of, of activities and actions and forces going on in the universe and I, I hope that, that my website will encourage people to think about how they live and think about this society and maybe make some changes in their own lives and maybe not but at least not making those changes with thought instead of just because this is what culture tells us to do so again, Greg, thanks for the opportunity to be on the show, and I encourage people to go to my website, contact me there if they would like, and in, into the conversation. Well, folks, that's it for another week. As ever, thank you so much for listening. If you enjoy the show, please check out the website. That's legalizefreedom.com, legalize-freedom.com, where you'll find an archive of programs offering alternative views on a wide range of topics, including world affairs, politics, and economics science and technology, religion and spirituality, conspiracy and alternative history. You can also browse and buy a range of books and DVDs from our guests, and if you're feeling generous, make a donation to help keep the site up and running. Until next time, I'm Greg Moffat, and you've been listening to LegalizeFreedom.com. <laughs>